Hi, I'm Chris Hutchings and I'm your host. Welcome to the 10Q Interview Podcast. In today's episode, I talk to freelance consultant, illustrator and podcaster Justina Green. This is a great episode. I really enjoyed it. I took a lot away from it and I'm sure you will too. If this is your first time listening to 10Q Interview, I wish you a very, very warm welcome. I hope you enjoy this podcast. I'm sure you will. If you do, let me know your favorite bits on social media at 10Q Interview everywhere you will look. And most importantly, don't forget to hit subscribe or follow wherever you are listening to this. It would mean the world to me and uh, no doubt Justina too if you share this episode far and wide. There is so much stuff in there that I had no idea about and some really good insights that I think, you know, you'll think of someone when you're listening to it or who would really benefit from hearing it. So make sure you share with it and let them know. Anyway, enough of me going on. Now onto the podcast. Justina, good morning. Thank you so much for coming on the Thank You Interview podcast. It's lovely to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited about our chat. Good. So am I. And in that spirit of that excitement, I'll kick off with question number one straight away. You meet a stranger, bar, cafe, pub, wedding, wherever it might be, and they ask you what you do. What is it you're most likely to say to them? I think recently the answer has been that I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> because I have moved um, moved from London to a seaside town in Dorset, which has been really lovely. But it's triggered those conversations with new people who, okay. um, whom I don't know. And I think, I don't know like how many of us have that, but I've always craved um, a job role of sorts, uh, maybe, or something like, you know, to be one thing, to be an architect or something like that. Okay. Um, but I have been freelancing all my career, bar first two years out of uni, and right. I have always done a variety of things. Um, and I can't let go of none of them because I enjoy the variety. So <laughs> when people ask me, I'll see which angle is most suited to them, I guess. Yeah. And I would say that I run a design podcast, that I'm an illustrator. Okay. And that I also consult in the design industry. Do you think people are a little bit more receptive these days to having that I mean, I don't know if you've have you heard of Emma Gannon and her multi-hyphen life me- multi-hyphen method, and basically she talks about how exactly what you're saying, right? People like being have, a slashy. I think that's yeah, the term. Basically, <laughs> um, I'll send you a copy afterwards. But it's, it's an interesting read, and it's it's basically exactly what you're saying. We're not we're no longer that job title that actually, you know. I guess used to define us and so many people have got different interests and different I I don't want to use the word side hustle because I, I don't really think it's probably fair in this but it's it's opening yourself up to different revenue streams right absolutely and I have to say that you know with the current economic climate I was thinking about it I think yesterday that actually having a full-time job would freak me out the most at the moment because yeah. it's not stable. It's not as stable as people think. And if you let go, that's the, that's that, that's that. You know, that's your income gone. Well, for yeah. me, things sh- can shift and move, but I'm never stuck, really. Um, no, it's a bit of a misconception, isn't it? That everyone talks about job security. And... Yeah, I think it used to be like that for sure. Especially when yeah. you were at a job for a really long time, so you would need to get a big payout to if people wanted to let you go. Sure. Um, but I really don't think that's the case anymore. 
Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? I, I think um, I think you're right. Back in the day, it was a big thing, but now, I mean, you see it every week in the papers or online, don't you? About how so and so companies letting thousand people go or whatever, and and, and those people ultimately have gone from having the, the security in the morning to that evening, just nothing, and it's it's a little bit terrifying, really. Yeah, of course, and also if you you know have a mortgage, have kids. It, it seems like that job security is, or that um, financial security from month to month of having the same basis is the most important thing. Yeah. And I understand that. But I also think that stepping into that unknown, um, if you have skills and if you are good with people, can benefit people hugely. So how long have you been working in this way then with, with multiple uh, things going on? Um, I think I started to, so I went freelance when I was two years out of uni, so I was 23 um, and I was working in the design industry already. Okay. Freelancing for about two years um, in digital marketing. Then I had my own agency for five years. Um, and after that, so when I was 28, I have broken up my engagement, um, got my ex to move out of the house we bought together, so bought him out of the house, so that was quite stressful. And that time also decided at the agency when I thought about what the success looks like, I re realized that it's not my definition of success. So I kind yeah. of folded that as well. And since then, the things have been split between two, three four different things i guess they are all around people communications telling stories so there is something running through all of them but yep. some is in the podcast form some is through illustration some is through written word okay i guess in the because we're on a podcast now i'm gonna i'm gonna automatically sort of go towards that as a question what how long have you been running your podcast for so i have been running the podcast for four years Oh wow, that's that's quite a long long time in I guess today's world where the average epi the average series lasts I, don't know, I think it was six or seven episodes or something before people quit. Yes, because people don't realize how much work podcasting is. Because <laughs> no, you don't. think you you know you get a mic and you get on the Zencaster or another platform, you record and that's that. But yeah. to prepare for an interview, to make sure everything is running, to get all your marketing sorted, distribution is actually quite a lot of work. Um, it is, and I started actually. to do it just when I went freelance without an idea of why I was exactly doing it but I just I really love people and in the design industry sometimes there's lots of egos around yeah. or kind of stars of design or architecture so a regular person might feel like they can't achieve what they've achieved so I really wanted to talk to people and discover their stories, the stories behind their success and show how they all had journeys with ups and downs to get where they are. And that truly all of us can get to the, you know, what we want. Yeah. But it will never be straightforward or as straightforward as we think it will be. And that, that was predominantly in the world of design, was it? That's right. Yeah. So I ran a design podcast. So I speak to designers, creative directors, editors, illustrators, um, architects, all all sorts of creative types. Okay, and for those listening who aren't familiar, what's it called? So we can put. It's in the called show notes. On Design, and on design. 
to it has the red cover and my name is uh, Justina Green. So that's kind of if you type in on design or Justina Green and look for you'll the red up. cover, you'll find it. <laughs> and do you, do you still enjoy it? Do you or do you enjoy it? Actually, not still enjoy it. I'm guessing the answer is yes, if you're still doing it after four years. No, absolutely. You know, and, and what I love about it the most is having a conversation with a person who say I might admire their work already. Yeah. And I might research everything online about them. And then I find out something completely new during a conversation. Yeah. How much um how much time do you put into researching your guests and is it quite a lot? I, I would say so, yeah. So I think it's not really time based, but it's based on reading all major interviews with them I can, any kind yeah. of talks they've given, just to get the idea for the person, for what they want to talk about. And, you know, sometimes you find those fantastic bits of information buried somewhere that yeah. are actually very important to their story. So knowing that, you can create a better conversation. And then I prepare the questions for the guests and send them to them in advance, mainly because some of some people like to receive them. Yeah. But what I've learned to do during the conversation is to always follow the guests. So if their mind is somewhere else, if they're obsessed with something else right now that I didn't know about, follow that thread rather yeah. than take them back to the question because you'll get more authentic interview. It's funny you say that. When I, when I developed the concept of my podcast, the 10Q interview, I thought I, I thought I'd stumbled on something really good, and, and then I kept reading this stuff um, where they were saying about you shouldn't have pre-formatted questions. Similar to your point, that it should be it should be a bit more free-flowing, and it's something I work really hard on to try and get that segue right, or to not cut off the guests before they have finished saying everything they want to say about a particular question. So I think that's really kind of actually solid advice that you don't really think of when you're when you're interviewing people and i think there's also a difference between the questions you're asking on this podcast and yeah. pre prepared questions specifically around a person's career or what they make because yeah. the questions you ask they're designed to give you big open answers around things that people might not be aware of true true so i, hope I so think anyway. you can have questions <laughs> or not but it's about not not following just what's kind of online or what's been already said and digging deeper really yeah agreed agreed so so you, who who's been the best i'm not gonna ask you the best guest because that's, that's unfair on all your guests but who's is there any household names that we as non-design aficionados would have heard of Probably not, because I tell my husband sometimes, oh, I've got this graphic designer. He's the biggest one in the world. And he goes, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think so. However, if you were, for example, I'm very into um, kind of sports and wellness as well. Yeah. So you might know Headspace, and I spoke to the creative director of Headspace. You might know the North Face brand. Yeah. I spoke to the creative director there, also creative director at Patagonia, the editor of monocle magazine creative director at the guardian so wow, there are lots okay. of people you would not know but from kind of household brands let's say and have you found it easier to get guests as you've been sort of was it was there a tipping point where you went from i don't know struggling to get guests in the beginning to then actually where you built up a bit of a, 
a portfolio, for lack of a better term, the the, the kind of the I don't want to say caliber again, like the, the the range of guests were they easier to get or was it less of a struggle? It definitely it happened that once you get kind of certain people, if they if they're your future guests, they really respect who you already interviewed. Yeah. Then they kind of might want to be on the podcast as well. Um, but I think what happened as well is that at the beginning, I wasn't really thinking about the big, big names because I was curious. I was always curious about people that I probably follow on Instagram that are around me, that are within my circles kind of somehow. And I think so as I grew and my circles became bigger or my outlook or I started to become interested in more things. Yeah. That's when the names started to grow as well. Fair enough. Um, if there was one tip you would give someone who's listening to this and thinking oh do you know what i'd quite like to start a podcast what what would that tip be think twice (laughs) (laughs) um so i would say that the the podcast has two parts really when one is being the host like both of us are and Mm -hmm. researching guests and kind of being the face of the pod being really good when you talk to people and then the second part is production and that's the audio production that's making sure that no taps on the desk yeah. are heard, um, that I'm not louder than you are when you put the recording together, etc. Yeah. And it's not something I could do if my husband wasn't in music production. Okay. So we are a very good team and he does that. And I've had lots of people come to me kind of around starting podcasts or looking for advice. And I would say that before you start, Make sure that you have the production covered somehow. Either that you have the skills or you upskill. Okay. Or that there's somebody that who can help you. Good tip. Good tip. Um, I'm kind of conscious that I, I focus very solely on, on podcasts there when we talked about what you do. Remind me, what was the other stuff you said? You freelance consulting? Consulting for within the design sector and I also do illustration. Okay, fine. Which I guess segues nicely onto the second question then about when you were a kid, what did you want to be? Fashion designer. Did you? Yes. So I was always doing things with my hands, kind of crafting. I made my own prom dress. Um, I learned how to crochet, how to make clothes from my grandma and my mum. And I remember I was um, born in Poland, so I was growing up in town in southern Poland. Okay. And I remember first finding out who Alexander McQueen was, the fashion designer. Yeah, yeah. And just falling absolutely head over heels with his work because it was incredible. It was ahead of its time. And it was magical because it wasn't ready to wear. It was couture and he was creating Mm. different worlds. And I realized that he went to Central St. Martin's school and... That's quite a famous one, right? For that's the right, design. yeah, yeah. And the second um, kind of point towards me wanting to be a fashion designer was watching Project Runaway in the nineties or <laughs> early two thousands, I guess, and seeing one of the participants there who was Gareth Pugh, who was also from Central Saint Martins. Did, did you go to Central Saint Martins? Didn't in the end, but I went to University of the Arts. Okay. So I went to the other college within um, the group. Right, okay. But yeah, so I wanted to be a fashion designer and also wanted to work in advertising because I was interested in the making and in things, but I was also very interested in, I guess, behavior change. 
and with what influences are i guess you know being a teen working like looking at nlp and kind of those things okay where where did that i mean both those plans i guess sort of have a very heavy focus on creativity Where, where did that creativity come from I would say that I don't know because it was always there. I just couldn't have it any other way. And it was, I was always drawing and and I'm not saying I was good at it at all, but I was very drawn to it. You know, like there's a thing that you might not be good at or like you don't care. You just really love doing something. And for me as, um, as a kid and as a teen, you know, with all the angst, that was the release. That's just the idea of creating a world that doesn't exist on paper or creating, I guess, clothes as in costumes that turn you into somebody else, something else. It was the storytelling yeah. um, that I just really, really adored. It's kind of a point, isn't it, where we, where we grow out of that, where you you stop doing things you love and start doing them for different reasons. And I wonder, I wonder, I'm sure there's people far more qualified and intelligent than me to will explain to me why that is, but it almost seems a bit of a shame that one grows up and I don't know, doesn't do stuff for love as opposed to, you know, if we're no good at it and they think, Oh, no interest anymore. It's, it's a, it's a weird paradox. It is. And I think a lot depends on our surroundings and who yeah. we have, the people we have around us, the school system we go through, True. the opportunities we have, and our own beliefs, which, of course, when we're kids, teens, they're shaped by people around us. You know, we we take on people's beliefs, which might have, like, be opposite to what we think about ourselves. Yeah. But you just take on what your parents say, grandparents, what your peers, your teachers. And then I think if we get snowed under, under you know, with that, and we can't stick our head out and we just forget. Yeah. And we get molded to that something else because then everybody's happy with you, you know. I remember I did my master's in illustration in 2019. Um, and I said to my mom, I got a place at master's. And, you, you know, I was consulting, had the podcast, you know, everything was going really well. And my mom kind of just said, why? Why yeah. do I need it, you know? <laughs> and she, like, it was always obvious that I just love to draw. Uh, for myself not necessarily for work and she just asked why because in her world that wasn't needed but that's her perception so I think you know and it took me to 10 years to come go back to uni and 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 do master's illustration because I was close to turning 30 and I still loved it obviously it didn't go away anywhere Mm. and I thought fuck I just can't continue like without I have to try I have to give it a shot um without thinking what will happen but just had to try so that I don't regret not trying yeah I mean I think it's amazing that you did that actually because I think a lot of people probably wouldn't most people wouldn't yeah it's you know I think people can and everybody needs to have a time in life when they just can't keep going as they are Because for me, it didn't come naturally, like as in it didn't come peacefully, you know. It came yeah. after closed the company, broke up engagement, staying in the same house, but you know, my ex moved out. And I had that fear of, you know, but getting first gray hair and turning 30. And and that's what, you know, kicked my butt to do it. So 
I, I guess we all, it, it's, you know, it's always when the times are harder, that's when we grow, isn't it? Amen. Amen. <laughs> um, just going back to what you were saying about fashion designer, when, was there a point where that you obviously didn't go down that path ultimately? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to understand why you didn't, I guess, and at what point you said, right, I know enough's enough and I'm not going to, and you drew a line under it. Yes. So I don't think I never, ever drew a line under it. That's the thing. So watch this okay. space. But I think, as I said, I grew up in Poland and then I applied to six courses all within the University of the Arts where three were more around making stuff or drawing and three were more around kind of communications, advertising, curation. Okay. Um, that was the time where to submit a portfolio, I was sending physical slides of things. Okay. And also in Poland, you didn't have art at school. So any art I was doing was at home. So you couldn't have art as a subject. Sorry, so, so you, you went to school in When did you come to the UK? 18. So to, to study. Oh, uh, right. Okay, fair enough. Okay. So I came from very non-art background. Um, and I got accepted for two courses. One at Central St. Martins to do curation. And one at London College Communication to do PR and media. Okay. And... The Central St. Martin one, I had to fly over for an interview in London. And the London College of Communication was unconditional offer. I just got it. So imagine me in Poland, in a town, yeah, without parents speaking English. I got an unconditional place. That's incredible. That was the one. <laughs> so there was no thinking. I don't think, you know, my parents were putting a lot of money away. A lot of Polish is lot away to have some pounds for me when I fly out, so there was no, you know, no question of money for flights there and back to London. Yeah. Um, so I went for the for the un unconditional offer. How did your parents feel about you going to London for uni? I honestly don't know. <laughs> it's um, they're two complex creatures. And okay. I don't know, you know, everybody's parents are different. And, and I guess most most parents... Let's say that my parents div were going through a divorce six months before my A-levels. Oh, okay. So I'm not sure I probably had wasn't, any probably wasn't energy front of mind. to capture how they were feeling. Or yeah. they had, you know, th there was a lot going on in their life. Yeah. So I think, to be fair, me going to London, for sure they were happy. But it probably added extra stress of having now one child also abroad while going through everything. I mean, that's a big move to make at 18, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Especially pre-WhatsApp, pre-Skype, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that that was, you know, that the, was the journey towards PR. And when I started to study it, I fell in love with it. I also love art. I started to do internship at cultural PR agencies, at fashion PR agencies. I was going to parties. I was going across the UK for different auditions, kind of with the PR. I discovered contemporary dance and I was absolutely swept off my feet. I loved it. It's, I can imagine. And then I stumbled from that. I stumbled into interior design and then design sector. And I fell in love with it because it's creative, because I see beauty around me all the time. Um, and for a very long time, seeing it and speaking to designers and speaking to creatives and working with them yeah. was enough. 
and that was fulfilling my creative side, I guess. I'm not surprised. It sounds incredible. <laughs> but then, you know, 10 years on, then kind of that feeling of that, whether it's fashion design or designing things myself, being a designer yeah. has been coming back quite strong. Has it? To, for me to also do things. So sure, talk about others, but also I want to be doing stuff. Well, I guess, I mean, there's never been a better time to, to explore other avenues, right? I mean, and I guess I'm, I'm speaking very liberally here, but if you wanted to start a fashion brand tomorrow, it would be infinitely, I'm not saying successful, but it'd be infinitely easier to start something tomorrow than it would have been, I don't know, in your early 20s after graduating from university. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And So that door's not easy. shut to you, right? Yes, it's very easy and it's also very scary because essentially you you're the only person in your own way. Yeah. And I still I'm still in my own way and it's really fucking annoying. But I'll get there, you know. But like you say, the tools are there, yeah. the strategies are there. You can listen to thousands of podcasts about how to market yourself. You can learn everything online. You absolutely don't need to go to uni to gain creative skills. But it, but even stuff such as I mean, I don't know if you've heard of the website Everpress. Yes. And again, you know, fashion is far more than just T-shirts, but you can create a range of T-shirts on something like Everpress and you don't even have to worry about any production or, or any of that stuff. And it's just, it's, 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 kind of a, it's kind of amazing what can be achieved these days with, you know, due to technology and, and business and the rest of it. Absolutely. And the, you know, the unprecedented change as well is that you can reach your customers directly. Yes. But the biggest yeah. challenge, I believe, for like anything you might want to do is marketing. It's getting through to the per to the people, capturing attention enough, making sure you're offering something that provides value to them. Yeah. And doing all that at a cost that is profitable to you ultimately. Absolutely. And I think you can do that for free, but it's 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 about the idea and about being genuine and you know, I find that with some illustrated projects I do, the more raw they are, that and essentially the more personal they are, talking about things that are maybe not talked about as much. Mm. Like people are crazy for it because people can see themselves in that content. And when I do like pretty flowers or whatever, you're like, well, I don't care. What's the story? Uh -uh. Well, what it's... what sort of things are you illustrating? So I have chronic condition called endometriosis and I had the surgery last year. <clears throat> so okay. one of the things that endometriosis does, you have very severe period pain, but to the right. point that you can't get out of bed or um, you can't work really. It's kind of like 10 out of 10, you know, A&E kind of style. Oh, and okay. I've gone through that and one in 10 women have it worldwide, um, but nobody knows about it. So... When I created content, kind of in stories, kind of comics around that, suddenly you have that one in 10 women being feeling seen and connecting to that content. Okay. I also created comics slash articles because I also write around being in your 30s and having no idea if you want to have kids or not. Okay. Again, there's a full crowd out there who will not post it on social because it's not what you post on social. Oh, you but... say that, but I'm starting to see it a little bit more regularly now, actually. Well, that's really good if it's um, you know slowly coming out yeah in fact i saw i saw several posts about it just it might have been this week or last week from someone i follow on twitter 
and I, I, it still seems I don't want to use the word taboo because I think it's like it's not quite taboo, but it's on that scale of tabooness, right? Where people don't really want to talk about it or whatever. But I definitely feel like it's coming into the conversation more and more, and will be even less taboo, you know, as time goes on. That's very good, and you know, that's what I would really like for anything that bothers us where there's just lots of people going through the same thing because it doesn't have to be women's health doesn't have to be our own families can be anything um to just be able to be a bit more open about it so that we can all connect more well i mean it seems a logical conversation right because there's a lot going on in the world i mean i i I, you know big caveat here i do have two young girls and the thought of what I'm bringing them into, I'll be honest, scares me a little mm. bit, right? The fact that, you know, so my eldest is going to be five very soon. So in 10, 15, 20 years, what does the world look like? You know, is she ever going to be able to afford a house unless, you know, I make my millions and essentially leave her one? Like, I don't know. It's a little bit, you know, what's, what's climate change? What's the world going to look like in 10 years? Um, the economy, all this sort of stuff, and, it, and it's not to be doomsday because I'm I'm a I'm a very optimistic person in general about the future, but there is a little bit element element of it that scares me about what I've you know subjected my girls to ultimately. I know because it doesn't seem rosy right now, but also no. the new generations they will have new solutions, mm-hmm. and it might be that we can't even see those solutions yet because we're so. You know, we've grown through certain times and, you know, for example, even like through the pandemic, sure, like housing is really expensive in cities, but maybe we don't need to live in cities anymore. So maybe suddenly that opens up all sorts of housing opportunities. I 100% agree with that. And I, you know, we moved from just outside London to Gloucestershire and, you know, the kind of the economies of scale there, what you get for your money compared to what you get in, in Hertfordshire is just, it's totally different. Yeah. And also uh, there might be better provisions for people who don't want to buy property. I think that currently it doesn't sound like it's um, good at all in terms of the rental market and what landlords are allowed to do, especially yeah. when you hear from, it's the first time I ever heard about it, that in London people bid for flats or bid yeah. for room shares, kind of the best and final offer. And I think that's just diabolical to do that. So yeah, it will depend on... That's kind of been going on for a while, really. I remember five mm. years ago when me and my wife were looking to rent somewhere in the interim. Long story, but we were trying to buy a house and it was delayed and we ended up had to rent somewhere for six months. But I didn't really think anything of it. And we were going to see, you know, with the state agents and then I'd ring them back a day later going, oh, yeah, actually, we're interested. Oh, no, sorry, it's gone. It's gone, yes. it's gone, it's gone, mm-hmm. it's gone. It's like, oh, you know, it's gone. To the point where we ended up going to see one in between Christmas and New Year and literally put an offer in the car park because it mostly ticked all our boxes and it was just like, otherwise, you know, it would go. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. I think that's only got worse in, in, in that five years by all accounts. And in the pandemic as well. True. But yeah, I mean, look at look at us. Right, we're talking now. You're in Dorset. I'm in Gloucestershire. And we're talking on, on on a, an app that's down to tech. And actually, as lovely as it would be to be in the same room as you and chat like that, it's not essential anymore. And I guess 
that's amplified over workspaces exactly to your point you don't need to be in the hub of the city and, and listen there's definite pros and cons between you know working in close proximity to people but it's not central whereas it used to be which is i think no, is the key thing right okay i'm going to move on because i feel like we could talk about this for ages and then we're going to miss out on all the other questions but um tell me something about you that not many people know uh, i shouldn't have told you about endometriosis you see well, this is, I, you know, just before I was reading that question, I was thinking, you seem like a very open person. And I, I'm guessing there's probably not a lot that people don't know about you that, you know, that you share. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we all have things we don't share and won't share, like like some family stuff and those things. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I would say... Endometriosis was something that, well, everybody knows because I do it. That's the thing, you know, that's I started to take those things and talk about them. Okay, let me ask you a different question then. So <laughs> endometriosis, you said one in 10 women worldwide have it. I don't think you said yeah. UK, I think you said worldwide. Yeah. 10% of all women have this. Right? That's a, when you talk about uh, actual numbers, that's a huge number of people, a huge number of women. What point did you go from have you always been pretty open about having it or was there a point where you had it and you hadn't really told many people and you thought, fuck it, people need to hear this because it should be a bit more mainstream than it is. Well, I had it for two years, but I didn't know what endometriosis was and it took me two years to get diagnosed, you know, so sure. Okay. I wasn't talking about endometriosis for two years because I had no idea it existed. So I just okay. knew that I had very severe period of pain and I couldn't get up. But I thought I had PMS or I had to suck it up or all sorts your, of things. From your conversations you've had subsequently to being diagnosed, does do many women have this and don't realize it? You know, that's a question that I would like to know the answer to because okay. what started to happen when I shared that my diagnosis women started to approach me around oh I have severe period pain do you, you know should I go to doctors should I do something about it so that started to happen for sure but unfortunately I think we're so behind on research so behind on education around it but really unless a person knows somebody else who knows what endometriosis is or has it is incredibly stuck because I was very lucky because I got my period when I was at my friend's house in Bath we were visiting for the weekend and it happened that my friend heard about endometriosis okay and she said I oh, have you heard about it and that's what's got me googling and then kind of going to doctors and I was dismissed at my GP um so I spent another six months thinking that I might be going mental and it's just in my head and I'm weak um, but it was getting worse, so I changed the GP and then eventually kind of, you know, got diagnosed and had the surgery. But it, the awareness has to increase, and unfortunately there's not enough research into endometriosis because it doesn't kill women. Right, so yeah. with, for example, breast cancer and various cancers, you have much more research because they kill people and they kill women. But endometriosis is a chronic condition that is very unlikely to kill you, but will turn your life into hell. But because okay. there are no deaths 
the funding is much slower. The research is much, much slower as well. Okay. I mean, this is a difficult com topic for me to discuss with you because obviously I have absolutely no idea about any of this stuff, you know, from a, from a symptom point of view. But if anyone's listening to this, what should they be looking out for or when should they go from being this isn't something to worry about to I should explore this a bit in a bit greater detail? So I would say that in general, if you're a woman, if you're a man, you know your body, you know when things are wrong, you know when <laughs> things are just fucking not right. You, like, yeah. you just know it. Or if you can't figure it out, take a, some time, breathe a bit, just switch off things around you, tune in and really ask yourself, how does this feel? Yeah. Because deep down, we just know when things are wrong. But we, you know, we intellectualize things, make things logical, compare ourselves to others. Well, can, can, I just, can I just interrupt you two seconds? But is, is there, there will be people who have normalized this now, where it's been like it for five years and actually... It's just part and past of, you know. That's right. That's life. right. Yeah. 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 So hopefully now they can stop and think about, oh, actually, is it supposed to be that way? So the symptoms for endometriosis are or can be severe period pain. So it's period pain. If it stops you from just getting on with your day, that's already bad. Okay. And it doesn't matter like how long it lasts. Um, pain during sex as well. Um, problems around doing a poo basically either really painful or trouble there because okay. um, i was first you know my doctor wanted to diagnose me with ibs and i knew it was an ibs so kind of those sorts of things but i only had i had severe period pain but only for two days of my period so i thought oh can't be endometriosis because it's not that bad and i didn't yeah. have as much of other symptoms i had stage two endometriosis so I would say anything around pain, do not ignore it. And also for women on the pill, especially if you're on the pill, that's supposed to chill out your hormones. If you're on the pill, you don't have regular period because it's a withdrawal bleed and you're still in pain or yeah. you still have symptoms, then that means that the pill is not even covering enough whatever you might be going through. And I have lots of friends in their 30s who have been on the pill for 10 years and in truth, they just have no idea what's going on in their bodies. Yeah. And then, you know, that you're in your 30s and you might want to start trying for a baby. And suddenly you come off a pill and, you know, <laughs> and the hell opens because suddenly you realize that nothing's working because it was just covered up by the pill for 10 years. Right. So I would say just, yeah, checking it with yourself, with your body and really seeing how you feel and and periods are just not supposed to be painful and i guess if you've got any doubt or any suspicions as an issue go and see a doctor yes and the doctor might completely dismiss you unfortunately because the guidelines are directed towards more fertility rather than limiting pain okay so if you're a woman who wants to have a baby and you happen to have severe period pain you might be seen and sent for ultrasounds if not like me i wasn't thinking about kids i just didn't want to be in pain i just got prescribed strong painkillers so okay. then on my subsequent visit i said i really want to have babies because <laughs> i was like <laughs> like I, I i want to be seen and then when you can get is an ultrasound but an ultrasound can only show a suspicion of endometriosis 
So if you can go farther and try to get an MRI scan, then you can see more. So but hold the, on, is that, is that where they found there was an issue then once you'd said you want babies and they sent you for an ultrasound? Yeah, and I had I was really lucky because I had another issue in my uterus. So and that was more serious for having babies than endometriosis. So then I got MRI scan and the surgery and you know they did everything at once. I had like the best MOT <laughs> in the world. <laughs> um so I was unlucky, lucky, whatever, that you know, I had like extra issues piled on top. Um yeah. but endometriosis can be fully diagnosed only through laparoscopy surgery, which means only once you're out on anesthetic and they've put needles in your tummy that's when they can really see it so ultrasounds only show a suspicion mri shows a bit more yeah. but really you can be diagnosed during surgery so very often women would get the surgery to get diagnosed and during the surgery they might have their endometriosis deposits either cut out or burnt out with laser and then you wake up high on morphine you look at <laughs> your tummy and you see how many holes you have you know how many plasters and i had four big holes like four big plasters and two small plasters and it was 5 p.m so i couldn't see a doctor that day so i just woke up i looked at yeah. my tummy and i was like fuck okay so they did something there and then waited till the morning to find out did you not know they were going to do that well no because you don't know how much of deposits there are can they cut them out oh, so, you, do, right? so you went so you went under just for exp exploratory stuff and then they found something and then just then went to town. So how they tell you with endometriosis, you go under and they're going to see what's there and if there's stuff there to remove, they're going to remove it. Oh, but you obviously got no idea beforehand, right? No, not really. <laughs> Houses. Yeah, it's quite an intense experience. I don't recommend <laughs> it to anyone. Uh, but I, I recommend imagine. getting diagnosed or like really seeing seeing doctors. Okay. And are you open to people getting in touch with you if they have further oh, questions? Yeah, yeah on... for sure, for sure. Okay. Wow, I didn't expect to learn all about endo endometriosis today, but there you go. <laughs> fascinating. Okay, so if anyone's got any issues, go and see a doctor, or you're happy for them to give you a shout on absolutely because it's a very lonely experience. So, like oh, the more nice. people you know the nicer it is just to exchange like the shit that's happening even you know because that, that's a relief already right to be able to talk yeah. to somebody that has gone through the same stuff indeed indeed okay i'm going to ask you the next question now and i'm wondering if we've already discussed it but tell me about one of the most pivotal moments in your life yep that's that <laughs> <laughs> it's without a doubt uh, but i'll add a little bit to it for you so because it happened, it increased my interest in women's health. Okay. And you know, made me terribly annoyed that just why I didn't know about endometriosis and why I had to suffer so much. And it was before the surgery when I was in a lot of pain that wasn't getting answers. I pitched a comic to draw my story and to represent, which is the editorial platform of We Transfer. Okay. And they accepted the pitch. I did a comic. And that year it won World Illustration Awards. Oh, and wicked. that was mental because the biggest you know, thing that happened in my life turned, it actually started my illustration career. And that's when I learned that honesty and sharing those raw, real stories, that's where it's at because that's 
where people can connect to you and when you can do something for others as well. So by sharing your story, if you make it universal, it really can help others. And do you know what I love about that is I've heard that so many times, but 99 times out of 100 people are saying share your story and it's either via YouTube or Instagram or wherever, but actually where you shared it was via illustrations, which is is niche, right? And it's, but that also underpins what you're trying to achieve you know that's what you do so it's kind of I don't know, that's my language you know some people draw paint you know do photography that's my language and especially around things around kind of physical health or mental health where you can't see the pain you know i can't draw a broken leg but yes i'm in so much fucking pain how do i draw it so through illustrate and through photography you also can't do that but through illustration you can really create this different world where the pain is visible yeah. and it portrays so much better what the person is going through. Will, will you um, will you do me a favor? Will you share me the link to so I can share that in the show notes for sure. anyone who yeah. might want to have a look? Let me write it down because otherwise I will forget. Link to illustrations. Okay. Pivotal moments covered. Um, life lessons. Tell me one of the most valuable life lessons you've learned. When I quickly look through the questions, um, yeah. I could not quite figure this one out um, okay. because there's kind of so many, but I feel like it's more a feeling as you might have, you might be able to tell by now that I'm quite a feeling person. Um, I think. Well, let the, me, let me just, let me make it a bit easier for you maybe. So I had a guy on yesterday who asked the same question too. And he was a bit perplexed by this. And he said, you know, I've got so many <laughs> little lessons that sort of as a whole, they, they, you know, they've been powerful, but to, to, to identify just one is probably quite a challenge. So if there's, if there's, I might change that question to be, tell me some of your, you know, mm-hmm. um, valuable lessons that you've learned. I would say the one that comes to mind is to trust yourself. Okay. And what I have done over, in my 20s especially, if, for example, my confidence would be quite low, but I was doing really well with kind of with work at the time, like just really having the best time, best clients, you know, financially well. Yeah. But I would listen to people's opinions, although I didn't ask for them. And although the people who were sharing their opinions were not either in my position or yep. more successful. Okay. And I would have a gut feeling how things should be, but I would put myself down and look up to other people for no reason and follow their way of thinking. And that's yep. backfired big time many times. And so what I've learned over time is that again to me it comes back to the intuitive feeling yeah to i to really trust yourself and and understand that you always want best for yourself so kind of and and, and you are you and you live your whole life so you're very well positioned to make decisions yeah and if you ever take advice only take it from people and on the topics they're experts at and they're doing really well at 
So if I want, if I want to figure out what to do next with illustration, I will not ask a friend or my husband or my GP, right? Yeah. <laughs> I might ask a creative director and art director in the space in which I want to specialize. So just really, when you take advice, take it from the right people and otherwise trust yourself because people, you'll always get advice from others and their points of view, which is completely fine. But before yeah. taking them in as your own, have that buffer of thinking if you actually want to take that advice on board or not. I, I, I think that's a great lesson. Um, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I'm trying to think where I can add any value to that, but I can't. I think it's, yeah, it, everyone is quite free with their opinions sometimes. And I think what you said is is spot on. Like, if they've not been in your shoes or they're not on a similar path or have, you know, further down the path you want to achieve, then actually who gives a shit what they think because they can't honestly add value to your life yeah and sometimes you know sometimes there's great people who give you advice who, who are not in your shoes but give you advice for example it's, but then it's not advice but they prompt you for example what would you do what yeah. feels right so there's prompts coming from anyone but they're great like if they just if it's more kind of coaching mode when they ask you more questions that's great yeah. but yeah people like oh you should paint your walls in the living room this color or you know you should you know i'm i'm Oh, that's one thing that people don't know about me at all. I'm learning how to swim. And every time I'm at the pool in the slow lane, I just let people know that I'm learning because I might are, stop. Are like you how... learning because you want to be a better swimmer or are you learning because you can't swim? Learning because I can't swim. Okay. Well, kind of can now. So, you know, but every time I'm in the slow lane and I tell people that I'm learning to swim so that they're not surprised if I stop halfway through because I can't catch my breath on front crawl. Yep. everybody's telling me what to do to learn to swim every single person <laughs> oh but you, so yeah you should do that and you try this and i just stand there being very patient yeah are you, are you having lessons so i had five lessons okay and they've gone actually pretty well so now i'm practicing on my own and then in you know sometime i'll get my teacher again to just check kind of how i'm doing but I, I need to now practice just to make sure I can do full lengths and, yeah, do them regularly. Okay. Do you enjoy it? I really love being in water, yeah. <laughs> I get out of breath really quickly now and I kind of fuck up the breathing and, you know, stuff on the front crawl. Um, but I mainly do it because I know that when I'm in water, I'm very happy. But that will come, right? The, the breathing and the technique and I – so I, I – I... I mean, I can swim and I used to, I used to be an all right swimmer when I was younger, but then, you know, adult life gets in the way and you don't swim. And then I signed up for a half Ironman triathlon this year and oh, swimming, swimming was my weakest discipline by, by miles. What is it? Is it 1k for half? Ironman? No, it was 1.9k for swim. And it took me a long, long time to build up to actually being able to swim that distance. And I, and I, I can't remember what I was going with this story, but it, it's it's amazing how quickly you can build it up once you start getting a bit of consistency. But what I found, what I really found was I loved swimming and I loved the fact that, so I, I, I do a lot of running and I do a lot of cycling 
and generally when I'm running, I'll have a podcast on or or occasionally music, but nine, nine times out of ten a podcast. But what I found with swimming was I had no tech, right? So I even when I'm on my bike, I can look at my phone intermittently or if I get a message or whatever. Whereas when I was swimming, I found I would do like these sets, like these 2K sets, where it's like 10 times 200 or something or 20 times 100, whatever it was. So in the hole, it was 2K, but I was in the pool for like anywhere between 40 minutes and an hour. And I was totally tech free. And I, it, that was where I, I was chatting to someone in this podcast probably talking about meditation, but that was for me, that was where I was in my most meditative state because I was just swimming up and down. Like it's not like running where you have to sort of keep an eye out for cars or potholes or curbs that you can fall over. You know, you're just following this blue line on the bottom of the pool, up and down, up and down, up and down. And no tech or nothing to distract you. And it's just you at your mind, with your mind. And that's why, because I hadn't swum for so many years since I was a teenager, I suddenly found this love for it. I was like, oh, I, I, you know, although I did it because I was training for an event, I'm going to carry on doing that because for me, it was the one time in the day where I could just absolutely shut off from everything, you know, get away from my laptop, get away from my phone uh kids wife everything it was just like right it's just me in my head which that sounds incredible it's found like you found the thing that does that for you right and we can all find a thing like that yeah yeah yeah. 100 percent. like it used to be running because i run a lot but even then it was like i said you're not really solely focused um and i i never really got on with meditation i couldn't lie there just silent i just it never really worked for me i tried the guided stuff you said earlier about um chatting to the guy from i think it was headspace or calm i can't remember what you said but it was i tried those never really worked for me but swimming i think it's phenomenal and it's it's amazing to hear that you're sort of starting to embrace that and, <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> I, and you are enjoying it right yeah 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 it's you know it's it's like learning something it can be hard it can be scary but i just like being in the water and that's that's what i always remind myself so i kind of really love going and then it's really hard um and then go again so yeah it's all good good okay right i'm gonna move on to the next question now because i'm kind of conscious of time for you and i don't want to take up too much of your time i know you're busy i believe everyone has a superpower of some description what would you say is yours so that was an easy question and i think it's optimism you're the second person to say that in the guy i interviewed yesterday said the same thing Mm, mm. Yeah, I don't know where I get it from at all, but it's just there. It's are your parent are your parents optimistic? <laughs> Fuck no. <laughs> 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 Absolutely not. And if you know, looking back, you'd think that I would definitely not be an optimistic person. I don't know. It it's sometimes I think sometimes when you go through difficulty, or for me, I think what create the difficulty from childhood created a fire and that energy. Yeah in opposition to what was happening. And mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what it is. Because when you sometimes have lots of things in life that you don't want, it can be yep. really useful because you definitely know what you don't want in your life. Mm-hmm. So you just drive the opposite. I think optimism is a great superpower to have, <laughs> especially at the moment. Yeah, yeah, it helps. <laughs> it helps. Because, you know, you I'll get... Ask... To... On, I was going to say, I'll ask you the same question I asked him yesterday. Do you find it wavering at all with everything that's going on in the world at the moment? Well, absolutely, because, you know, that's the thing, because it's not about blind optimism and, and kind of have it, always having it, and you get kind of 
you know, knocked down and you just get up. It's, it's, I think it's just about when you get knocked down, however long it takes you, but you do get up. Yeah. And lovely thing I've learned as well is to, you know, when you meet others, like assume the best or yeah. look for the best in them and in situations. And this is not lying because you can think, you know, you can see that things are going to shit. But if, you know, if with what I've had happening, where I'm now is fucking amazing. So it also makes me believe, okay, that anything else that happens, I can still get through it. And sometimes, I don't know if it's, you know, when you're creative as well, you need shit happening in your life because then that's what fuels you. Yeah. Um, because otherwise, if you everything was hunky-dory, you'd just not make anything. And how do you find your purpose? And how do you connect to others, you know? So... So th th I think that's, yeah, that's where it's kind of coming from, uh, maybe. Okay. I guess that's going to segue nicely into the next question. So that, that's a very positive thing, your optimism. What topic is guaranteed to get you on your soapbox? Oh, patriarchy. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just anything that's, oh, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's it's that, but it's only because I've gone... I've gone through so much physical pain and mental anguish because women's health is under-researched. Okay. That that really gets me. And it gets me that there's a gender pay gap. And it gets me that women are on the pill, although it has side effects and we're just, our health is not taken care of properly. And, you know, it can get me that... I put a weight vest on and it doesn't fit me because it's designed for a man, you know, when I want to work out and I want to work out hard. So there's this book called Invisible Women, which is fantastic, which shows you about some, how things are designed in life and how systems run um, in a way that actually doesn't quite value women the same as men. So Do you think those it's getting things better? will get me. Yeah, we're, but we're like fucking far behind, you know. So, but has has it improved? Um, I don't want to say in recent times, but over time, is, is there been improvements? I think, like with everything in life, when you look at kind of linear and you stretch it long enough, for sure there have yeah. been, of course, because we've had the Me Too, etc. Um, but there is more work to be done, and that's you know, and and I also think on, you know, in the same vein, I think there's. A lot of work that needs to be done around men's health and yeah. men being able to talk to each other about emotions and not just bands and men just not being lonely, you know, and having a more emotional side. So I think whether it's women, whether it's men, there's just more to be done around both genders being able to express themselves fully and however they want, have the jobs they want, have the lifestyles they want without limitations of a society. Uh, yeah, but so I asked, I guess, about improve. Asked the question about improvements because I guess it's as empathetic as I can be. It's always going to be difficult for me to see stuff from a woman's point of view, right? And I, and I am not naive enough to know that I've got any idea about any of the stuff you said because it just it kind of is different for me. But when you talk about the men's stuff and the mental health, I have seen a definite shift in how men communicate. I've seen it among my peers. I've seen it with myself, even like how I talk about stuff. <clears throat> you know, that Christ, I wouldn't have talked. But like, I, 
I won't bore you with the whole story, but it was like a week and a half ago, I was on this bike ride and I was I was sobbing my eyes out when I finished. Now, if you'd have told me that, like, I don't know, three or four years ago, that I would be saying on my podcast, which whilst the audience numbers aren't huge, it's still out there in the world, that I would be telling everyone I was crying my eyes out for 10 minutes. I, I'd have thought you were mad. Like, it just, it's just like, no way, no way I'd do that. So it's kind of easy for me to say when you when you say about the men's the male side of things and the and the the valuable points you raised, I can see that because I've experienced it and I can see it on a day to day basis. So it's hard for me to see it from the female point of view. But that's why I was trying to work out: is it is it improving? Is it getting better? Because I can see that from a male perspective. Whilst yes, there is still a lot of work to do, I I can see shifts that I think are quite gigantic actually in in some regards. Yeah, and I think there are shifts around women, but I think it's just very deep issue that's been like running. You know, that's how a society is built. So, how do we it, fix it then? How do we? How oh, do we I do think it? it's an almost impossible task, and it has to be generation by generation for things. I was just going to gonna say, is it a generational thing? Absolutely, you know, and and that's why you know the kids will do kind of what they need to do, and even things like going back to periods that periods at school I still thought only to girls and boys like leave the room mm. and then the guys have no idea what's going on with women's body they don't even know how it's built and how then that can affect romantic relationships when a person is suffering and a man being able to help or being able to say well you need to see a doctor yeah or how does it affect sexual life as well so mm. you know if we can't teach boys about periods you know, I think that would be quite a good first step because they don't need to do anything with their knowledge, but they just, they were exposed to it, but it's not gross. It's not taboo. It's not just for girls. Yeah, It's just a body thing. That's completely normal. So I think it will take generations and lots of different governments and different policies to slowly shift us towards just more equality. No, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah kind of a I guess oh yeah I think I, I'm with you I think it's gonna be a generational thing but I, I you know I'm seeing things I saw this really good graphic the other day about how teens what teens are into these days compared to what they were I don't know if you saw it as well but it was like I had this chart about um all different things I can smoking was on it for example and it's like it's just a massive downtrend from early 2000s to now like teens just aren't interested in it. drinking was the same drugs was the same um, I think like obviously computer games stuff like that had gone up um, but I think what it tells you is actually the younger generation are a lot more conscious about this sort of stuff and actually you know maybe one more generation's time it's going to be even better and actually these things that you talk about are going to be addressed properly I guess hopefully and it's really interesting because you know I read an article about Gen Z and how they don't smoke they don't drink yeah because the world is going to shit and if they slip once, like at school, they won't be able to ever buy a property. They, you know, yeah. So it's also a question of what's driving that. Is it the fear that of the impending doom that they have to study, they have to learn hard so that they can go to school, so that they can earn just enough money to you know, rent a room in southeast London? So It's interesting you say it because I, I, my interpretation of it was because they just knew it was bad for you. And it was unhealthy and it was expensive and all of the above. 
Yeah, and maybe it's that, you know, or maybe they just feel more pressure because they also, you know, they were born with social and social yeah. media and the internet. So I think it's, you know, another like pretty complex issue. It is. Again, it's probably a topic that could be talked about for hours on a separate podcast. So I will move swiftly on. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I think the, I mentioned it briefly and it wasn't quite received from anyone, but it was, I think I either heard it on the podcast or it kind of came to my life mm -hmm. and it started as like, look for the highest value in everyone. And then okay. it's, I turned it into kind of looking for the highest value in everything. So okay, good like look, look for the best and like look for the good because then Have I you, think you're more likely to find the good. Yeah, I agree. Have you ever heard of a guy called Rangan Chatterjee? Yes, yeah. So he was on a podcast with Stephen Bartlett and he talks a lot about this sort of stuff. And I don't know if you've listened to it, but it's, I think when it was out, I don't know, maybe it was early this year or late last year, but I remember doing a, a, a post on Twitter or somewhere. And I think it's one of the most, one of the must listen to podcasts out there. Like the way he talks about, uh finding the good in people and being you know i think it's really important i'll share it with you afterwards it's um it's it's a good one but it's, it's similar similar to what you're saying about seeing the best in people because ultimately this is like a bit of a vicious circle if you if you don't if you start seeing the worst in people and then they see the worst in people and it's, it's just yeah and then I the worst I, happens because it's about mindset isn't it and kind of what you bring it, it, it's in some ways you know what you want more of in life it's that's what you should focus on so if you want more good or interesting people around you less conflict and kind of yeah. optimism like focus on that because if you focus on all the bad shit happening then you'll also might feel more powerless because you feel like it's too much bad stuff happening so what are you going to do yeah um so sometimes i find that it helps to find positives because then ca they can keep you going yeah i agree 100 percent no, I think it's really good advice. And I will share that podcast with you after because I think it totally reaffirm what you're talking Super. about. Um, so you've already told me you're an optimist. So when you think about the future, what do you see? Yeah, that's quite a big question as well because you, you know, you think about my future, future of everything. and But I think that I no longer really think about future because okay i think that i'm more focused about taking the right actions now or okay. supporting kind of the right people or right now because yep. you know we try to think about what will happen in the future and life has its way of <clears throat> doing things that we could never ever predict what yep, will happen agreed. you know and also, I think that often in life, the ebb and flow of the negative and the positive is needed. And that's just how life and history is that, you know, there's the difficult times so that then we can come out of them, improve things into more mm. positive times. So, so it's I a case think, of if you, if, you, if you look after what's going on now, the future will take care of itself. Yeah, 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 definitely. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's a great answer. Um, okay. Last question. So I have pinched this from a, another podcaster, but 
what I get is my previous guest to submit a question for my current guest, which is you. And then afterwards, I will ask you to let me have a question to ask to the next guest. That question is, if you could have a magic wand, what is the boldest positive impact you would make on the world? I thought about it before. And it's to for violence to not exist. Just anything that induces any violence in any way just does not exist. That's a great answer. Because then you'll have no war, no domestic violence, no bullying, no killing, yeah. just just lack of violence. Just, yeah, non-violence. And then, because then, you know, once we don't have guns, wars, well, once we can't hurt another person, we'll find ways of getting on somehow. We will have to, you know. Um, well, I guess but, all that energy has to then go into a positive thing, doesn't it? If it... Yeah, I'm going to build something, run a marathon if you're too pissed <laughs> off about shit, you know. Like, I don't know. Build and make a jigsaw, you know. <laughs> so we're going to remove about... all violence from the world. Yeah. Yeah. From the biggest to the smallest, because the biggest things are horrific. Yeah. But often there are the small things um, that can really fuck up a person. And I specifically think about children as well, because if you want to break the chain of kind of um, harm and and people being hurt and then hurting others, yeah, you know, I wish that really kind of no child could ever be hurt, um, in physical way, but also in, in kind of mental way, because their parents haven't sorted their shit out. Because yeah. we need young kids, young people, to be strong be themselves and really you break know, the re cycle right rebuild it and break the cycle absolutely and yeah. lots of kids unfortunately will absolutely have a really hard time breaking the cycle because of their circumstances yeah no i agree and do you know i think it's a lovely answer removing all violence in the world yeah i guess it's the do no harm isn't it <clears throat> do no harm yeah Realistically, it's a shame you don't have that magic wand because I think the world would obviously be a much better place if that was uh, put into action. It would be a completely different world and a completely different system because, you know, all violence comes, in my eyes, from lack or from fear or from, yeah. you know, something in that person's life. So if you thought, you know, it's not possible at all, but if you could, all the defense budgets and you could take those and put them into mental health, that would do a lot of good. <laughs> it would. Um, yeah, it would. Unfortunately, there's a few too many shareholders knocking around that I'll never let that happen, isn't it? But It's, you know, some of it is human nature. Um, some of it is the system. Yeah. And, and, and I don't think, oh, you know, I don't want to blame anybody because we've all built this world like as it is and, and it's improving, so it's getting better. But human nature has its huge weaknesses and there's a lot of hurt and then you know the hurt people hurt people etc so yeah. i think also if everybody shows up in your everyday and you're not hurting or you're helping or you help that you know like one person to realize their potential or kind of break from from the, their suffering like that's fucking amazing that's like the best you can do yeah. Because then that one person helps another person. 
so yeah, I don't think, you know, it has to be like, oh, these people are bad and they're not doing anything about it. They're stuck. They're stuck in the same way as we are. And sure, some have better ideas, some have worse. Yeah. But I think it has to run just through the whole system, all of its layers, through all our schools, and then slowly start changing how we live. Justina, that is, uh, I think, a very lovely place to end this podcast. I think... Um... I'd like to thank you a lot for coming on. Well, thank as you I, so much. As I mentioned, uh, you know, we, we'd not met before and we were introduced by a mutual friend of ours. And and again, I say this to, I think I've pretty much said this to all my podcast guests, you never know what you're going to get with someone when they come on and answer your questions. But it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you this afternoon and I've enjoyed it immensely um, hearing what you've got to say. And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It was really good fun. Um, where can if anyone wants to come and say hi or check out you know some of your stuff where's where's the best place to go yes yeah, so it'll probably instagram and i'm at justina green and if you don't know how to spell it then go to show notes because i'm sure that chris will put it in show notes I will. I will but also if it. you put justina green into google autocorrect will sort out my name for you i will it. <laughs> yeah <laughs> it will so it's it's quite easy but, <laughs> but probably instagram because i'm the there the most Instagram, just your channel of choice. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah, so I'll see you guys there. All the endo sufferers, <clears throat> people who are not happy with patriarchy, and <laughs> all the optimists come my way. <laughs> all right, I hope they do. Justina, thank you so much. Thank you. That was 10Q interview with Justina Green. Good one, wasn't it? If you made it to the end, thank you. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm sure you did, since still being here listening. For one, I didn't think I'd be ever speaking so much about female periods and endometriitis, but there you go. Important lessons learned and knowledge to share. On the topic of sharing, feel free to share any thoughts on any of the social channels about this episode at 10Q Interview everywhere you listen. Um, if you want to share it with friends, family, colleagues, also much appreciated that's all from me for now make sure you subscribed and followed wherever you're listening to this and the next 10q interview episode will be live in your feed very very soon take care